every person that I've hired in the last, you know, five to ten years who didn't cut their teeth in the direct mail world but more in the online world, you know, kind of looks at our copy and says, this is just too long. You know, no one's going to read this stuff online. No one will spend the time on it. And, of course, you and I both know, and you're a copywriter, and there are probably a lot of copywriters yeah. that will listen to this, we know that that's just stupidity. Um, it's not long copy or short copy. It's effective copy that sells. So yeah. the fact is that, you know, there's a lot of long copy online that's doing very well, and when you have a brand that's not known like ours, transferring all of that copy that we've invested in in direct mail and bringing it online has been far from a waste of time. Welcome to another Live with Roy interview where you can listen in absolutely free as I, Roy Furr, interview the world's leading experts on information marketing and publishing, internet marketing, copywriting, selling, business success, and a whole lot more. You can browse the entire Live with Roy archives, download past calls, and join us to get first priority notification as soon as new interviews are available, all by visiting www.livewithroy.com. Again, the address is www.livewithroy.com. Now let's tune in for another exciting interview. Hello, and welcome to another Live with Roy interview. I'm Roy Fur, as you know, and today's guest is uh, quite exciting to me because he is an like the consummate industry insider in direct marketing. Uh, he's been involved in the in the in the growth of one of the largest direct marketing companies. You're going to recognize their name immediately, um, and and uh, they're a newsletter and a book publisher. Uh, grew the business up beyond the nine-figure mark, um, serving serving some of the largest consumer markets out there, and all of it is based on their skill as as direct marketers. They are a direct marketing company, uh, and and what you're going to get out of this interview, you're going to realize that that my guest he has just utter passion uh, for, for learning the ins and outs of the industry and finding out, you know, what actually works and what doesn't by putting it to, to a marketplace test. Uh, and, and he's always looking for the best and the brightest talent to surround himself with uh, in terms of, of, of folks who really understand the core direct marketing concepts. And, and I think from that background, he – understand so much about direct marketing that that you won't be able to help but but be taken to to another level in your understanding just in in your short time listening to him today uh now he's a big influencer in the industry beyond his company uh he he has uh He's 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 pushed for for change and best practices in in the U.S. Postal Service uh, in multiple direct marketing educational uh, groups. Uh, he's a member of the Newsletter Publishers Association or uh, the Specialty Information Publishers Association, the Direct Marketing Association, the Electronic Retailers Association. Uh, he has has hired and worked with some of the best creatives in the business. Uh, He's a trustee of the Direct Marketing Educational Foundation. Like I said, his influence is everywhere in the direct marketing industry. And so it's my it's, – it, it's just with total pleasure that I welcome Brian Kurtz, the Executive Vice President of Boardroom, Inc. and Bottom Line Publications, to uh, Live with Roy. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Roy, and thank you for that uh, stellar introduction, although um, my, my kids uh, are not impressed. <laughs> well, fair enough. Yeah, uh, you know, if if you tell them that you're in the junk mail business, they <laughs> yeah they, they wonder why why mom throws away so much junk mail, right? Right. And, and then there's my mother who said, you know, if you got an MBA, you would have been successful. So <laughs> fair enough. Well, let's let's talk about your story because you have you have over 31 years experience now at, at Boardroom. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, so how how did you get started in in that business in in boardroom? It, it, it's a, it's not a fascinating story, but an interesting one, uh, and it just shows that you know trying to figure out what your what it sometimes you 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 kind of guess what your passion is based on something that happened in your childhood or 
you think you're good at one thing and you end up being good at another. Um, it wasn't that serendipitous with me, but basically I was an English major in college. I loved to write. Um, you know, people say, uh, my parents, to my parents' chagrin, uh, that I came home and said I was going to be an English major as opposed to an accounting major uh, was probably one of the worst days of their life. Um, but I said, I'm going to college to learn how to read and write. And to this day, I can tell you that I actually write better emails, even when I'm just corresponding with people, than most of the people I know in my circle. So I think my education was, was, uh, was a good one. Um, the one thing I did in college that I was most passionate about was that I was the film critic for the school newspaper. So there was sort of this dream at one point that, you know, I'll be the next Vincent Camby of the New York Times, and I'll be the great film critic or, you know, Roger Ebert or whoever. Um, so I was a big movie buff, and I did a lot of writing on movies and all that. Um, but when I got out of college, reality set in. It's like, what are you going to do with your life? And I did feel like I had some writing talent, so I really went after publishing jobs. So my first okay. job out of school was with a, a play publisher. had nothing to do with writing, but I was actually uh, le uh, doing amateur leasing for plays all over the country uh, for drama departments and basically royalty collections for the most part. And while I was working there, um, I had heard about this company, Boardroom, through a headhunter, um, that told me, and at that point, Boardroom was a pretty young company, probably about 10 years old. This was like 1981, 82, in, in that neighborhood. And uh, the guy who was the headhunter had been supplying a lot of people for this guy, Marty Edelston, at Boardroom, and kept on saying to me, you know, you're the kind of guy that he wants. He wants, you know, a young guy who can write, who can put sentences together both verbally and, and on paper, um, and so I'll make sure that as soon as something opens up there, I'll, I'll get you in for an interview. And for whatever reason, luck of the draw, the, the job that opened up was in list management. Uh, mailing lists in direct marketing is, you know, what, still the lifeblood, and I'll talk about lists sometime in this interview, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So basically the job that opened up was uh, a job, boardroom happened to manage their list in-house, which was rare uh, even back then. Most companies took their list and gave it to a, 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 an outside list manager that managed, you know, dozens or hundreds of lists. But boardroom, Marty had felt that keeping the list close to the vest was a good idea. Uh, he was a salesman himself, so he liked the idea of having a sales component to the organization. And I got a job basically processing list orders for, for boardroom. Um, and that's how I learned, started learning the business. I learned, you know, learning from the list side of the business is not so bad because what, what happened was I ended up with a lot of other people who were in the circulation end of the business, like the numbers crunchers and the, and the spreadsheet jocks who were doing circulation for magazines. And most of them were much better at spreadsheets and, and that type of thing than I was, but they didn't, hadn't studied lists and the audience like I did. And so I always like to say that, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say that I started in the list side of the business because I thought I think it gave me great training. Um, just to go back, you know, and then I can stop with my, my ancient history that I really felt that I wanted a – I thought I was going to be a writer, obviously. So when yeah. I got to the boardroom, I kind of waited my waited and see what, what would open up on the editorial side of the business. And when a job did open up at that point at Bottom Line Personal, which back then was a fledgling new, a brand new newsletter. Um, which now, of course, is our flagship. Um, there was a staff editor job that opened up. I went to Marty. I said, you know, I've been doing this list stuff for a year, year and a half. It's like I really want to go over to the editorial side. And to Marty's credit, and this is what true mentors do, you know, he said, I think you have a nose for marketing. I think that, you know, you've shown that you obviously can sell. Um, I think that it would be a mistake. And, you know, I think you probably would have let me go if I insisted. But, you know, when you're 23, 24 years old and, you know, the owner of your company who's a, a, a legend in his, own, in his own right tells yeah. you that you have a nose for something and that, you know, and I was liking it. It wasn't like I was, I was miserable by any means. I was really enjoying being part of the list business and I had become kind of a star selling lists, which was, you know, again, the competition wasn't all that stiff at the time, but 
um, I, I took a lot of pride in, in being really good at what I was doing. And at that moment, it was sort of like a big turning point because it kind of kept me on sort of a, a track toward direct marketing and sales as opposed to editorial. And I think it was the right move. And Marty not only saw my talent, but he also said, it's clear you have a passion for this. So, I don't, again, I won't say it was serendipitous. I won't say that I, was, I fell into it, although most people did fall into direct marketing in the 80s because it wasn't taught in schools and people didn't know what it was. Um, but what a practical thing to start learning. And uh, I'm uh, always uh, grateful to Marty for his wisdom in, in seeing what my talent was and then for me to kind of then pursue that line. And, and I've never looked back. I mean, I've never had any regrets about um, being on that track for direct marketing. Absolutely. That it, it it makes so much sense, and, and, and folks that, that end up having an aptitude for it, I, I mean, my experience is once they find it, they, uh, their, only, their only change in, in, in uh, occupation or calling or, 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 or whatever you want to call it uh, is, is within the industry, finding new products and new avenues to, 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 to explore with indirect response. No, I think uh, that's right, and, and I would add that, that I think that, this idea of, you know, measurable and um, I used to call it accountable advertising, but I, I, I think I like, the, I, I like deliverable and measurable and getting, you know, I used to say to uh, students when I was teaching in the 80s, like as a, as a new guy in the industry going back, speaking to college students about direct marketing, and I would always say to them, you know, you want feedback for what you're doing, you want to find out if something you put out there worked or didn't work. You really want direct marketing. You don't want to be in general advertising, which you know doesn't give you that kind of constant feedback, both good and bad. Um, yeah. But you know, I think that this whole idea of measurable and accountable and deliverable advertising, you know, probably ends up making most people like me a bit of a an advertising snob. In that, you know, I don't have a really high tolerance for people who've come out of general advertising. I mean, I like them well enough. I mean, I'm a, I don't dislike them as human beings, but that they, they, you know, grew up in a world that said, you know, this, th that the look of the ad was so important and the design, and I'm not an anti-design guy either. I think direct mail design well and, and properly, you know, obviously increases response rates, but everything was based on response rates and not being pretty. I mean, one of the early examples in my career when I learned about what the ECHO Awards were, ECHO, it's the uh, Direct Marketing Association Awards for, for marketing success. And I realized yeah. even though they asked on the, you know, when they asked ECHO Award people to put down the results they got with whatever campaign they were nominating, it was always, it kind of, it was kind of very surprising to me that a lot of the stuff that won, I knew actually didn't work that well. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was almost like pretty beat, beat successful. And that's where yeah, you know, the whole thing in direct marketing, you know, and you know as a copywriter, you know, that the whole idea is sometimes ugly sells or, you know, it doesn't have to be pretty to be responsive, et cetera, et cetera. So um, some really good lessons early in my career. The, the problem is you, you do end up becoming a snob to some degree of other types of advertising. And I will tell you, and we can get to this later if you want, that that I'll call it my 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 sticking up my nose at 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 more general advertising versus direct marketing has actually not been all good for me as I've gotten into online advertising. There's been a real I've had a real epiphany over the last couple of years that being a quote unquote slave to direct marketing and you know immediate return on investment and immediate measurable results is not consistent with a lot of online media, a lot of online, certainly social media, things that take a lot longer to figure out what the value is than some things in direct mail and print were in the 80s and 90s. So I can get into that. I think it's a really interesting thing. I think I mentioned that in my AWI presentation, which I think you, uh, you attended. Yes. And I, and I uh, talked a little bit about how 
being a, a, a serial direct marketer has actually um, inhibited some of my growth. I'm getting past it now, and I'm, I'm kind of breaking through it. But I had to come to the realization that being a slave to every single direct marketing principle as it pertains to all new media was not the best way uh, to be. And so that's been a really good well, learning experience for me. Absolutely. I think, I think that uh, that is a fascinating topic of conversation, and I, I absolutely want to get back to that because I consider myself one of the world's youngest direct marketing curmudgeons. <laughs> and 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 uh, so you know, with the, but I'm not sure. <laughs> with with the with, I, I would I I absolutely want to hear your experience on that. Now, before we get to that, um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about your about your background in lists and how that informs uh, your your direct marketing approach because a lot of folks get into direct market well a lot of the folks that I know are are into direct marketing either through through copywriting uh, which tends to be the circles that I run in or or design um, and and there are very few people that get into it from the you know finding the market side even though you know when you when you talk to real seasoned direct marketers you know the list that you're going to ends up being one of the most, if not the most, uh, influential aspects in, in terms of generating response. So uh, how, how did coming up in the, list, uh, give, in, the, in, in the list part of the business give you a completely different perspective than, than many people within the industry, and how has it helped you to really understand you know, mailing lists and markets in the way that you do? Great question. Um, so I... Um one of my mentors early in my career, I was lucky enough that he was a consultant to boardroom, was a guy by the name of Dick Benson. Uh, Dick Benson wrote, at that time, what I considered to be one of the Bibles, not the Bible on direct marketing, but certainly the Bible on direct mail, which was called Secret to Successful Direct Mail. And we actually reprinted it after his death in a boardroom, bottom line books, boardroom books edition, uh, which I wrote one of the forwards for. So, so Dick was so important to me. And one of his, he has these 31 rules of thumb. And one of his rules of thumb was always that no one spends enough time on lists. And so, you know, he, I was sort of a different animal to him. I always used to say he, he liked the women a lot in terms of his clients more than the men. Um, he was just that kind of guy. And so yeah. I would say that I would have been Dick Benson's favorite client had I been a woman. Um, but I was certainly his favorite male client that I knew of anyway. And I think the reason why he liked me so much is that I came out of the list business, got into the marketing and circulation side of the business, which was his area. And, you know, he, I guess one of the highlights of my career was sometime before he died, um, I was visiting with him and I said, you know, you always say no one spends enough time on lists. And can I, in the future, use that in presentations, put a little asterisk and say, this is from Dick Benson, um, but the asterisk would say, accept boardroom. And he said, absolutely. So I had his verbal permission to do that. Um, and, and, so the, and so let me, so let me talk about the specifics of that. So yeah. the fact is that, you know, he inspired me, as did Marty, to come up with a system to select mailing lists that was so different than any other mailer I knew. I mean, most mailers would go to a list broker, they'd give them a bunch of lists, and they would test a bunch of them. And, and the broker would talk about the segmentation, they'd talk about certain things. But the thing that I, I learned uh, early on is that the, and, and there were some people back then still talking about this, but not everybody, that how a name gets onto a file based on the promotion that got them changes the type of name it is. For example, uh, and you can relate to this as a copywriter, so if, I'm, if I was out there looking for lists and my control package was a number 10 package with all these different you know, teasers and fascinations on the outer envelope, lo and behold, other lists of publications that use number 10 envelopes with that similar approach ended up being really good lists, even if the demographics were a little bit off 
or if it was not the subject matter that was the same as mine. Like the type of the promotion became one of the ways that the list ended up being created. And learning very early on that there were, there were maybe no unique names, but that there were only unique lists was such an important concept to understand. And, and it went on later on in the, in the 90s where we got into Magalogs and, and tabloid uh, packages, and lo and behold, the best lists were people who used those formats in their direct mail and got names that way as opposed to people who used double postcards for similar kind of offers. So I saw this relationship between promotion and list being so intertwined that um, I realized that the copywriters, let me speak to your world, that the copywriters that I most wanted to work with were the ones that kept on asking about all of the lists that we used and what audiences we went after and what the, what the control packages were for those, those list owners whose lists we were using, those mailers, so to speak. And so the idea that, that the, 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 the list creation was so much a part of, of the whole marketing mix was a phenomenal thing for me to come from. And, and I said there were other people that I wasn't unique. I mean, I wasn't the only person that looked at it this way, but I was definitely in a minority. And what I'm seeing now, you know, take it fast forward to the present, you know, well, and also with lists, let me just say one other thing, you know, the ability, the segmentation that I learned and understanding, I'm not a statistician and I'm terrible in math, but I understand, I understood the whole concept of regression modeling and that if I mail to a a large list and I take a sample of that list, mail it, get responses, and then analyze those responders with certain characteristics that I can then attach to the bigger universe at large, that was the best way to select mailing lists. You know, yes, you selected mailing lists off data cards and from list brokers and all that, but when you really did true regression modeling, you were able to to kind of work off the people that were already responding to your offer to go find other names that look like them based on their, their transaction data in much larger list universes. And frankly, you know, the online community is just at the, I think, more at the beginning of this than in the middle of it. I mean, there is a lot more segmentation available today online than there was when I started doing online marketing. But the sophistication in the offline world, the ability to even do things like credit screens, you know, think about people complaining about online marketing and all the bad debt and how much how bad the payup is and imagine the possibilities when you can start doing credit screening and the kinds of things that we did in direct mail with lists um, my whole career so I gotta I gotta say that you know coming from the list uh, these are just some of the things I mean I've had you know 30 years of working in the list business or my first 10 years was were very intense selling and selling lists then my next 10 years were on both sides, both selling and buying, renting. And then probably the third part of my, my third third of my career was all marketing. So I kind of got out of the list sales part of the business, uh, although that part of the business has, has gotten a lot smaller because the size of, of direct mail lists has only shrunk. But I, these are just some of the examples of, of what I was able to learn as sort of a a list expert going into the larger marketing, whether it's in the creative, whether it's in offers, um, you know, that, that, you know, Dick Benson saying to me circa 1987, you know, no one spends enough time on lists was sort of a challenge to me that said, well, except boardroom. And so um, I, I yeah. just, I just love being out of the list business, and I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not ashamed of it because the list business was always kind of a kind of a little bit of a bowels of the business. Um, I will tell you though, in the early '80s, it was a boom time, and and when you went to the direct marketing conferences and got on the plane, it seemed like all the mailers were sitting in coach, and all the list brokers were sitting in first class. But <laughs> that's that's an interesting insight. Um... So, 
so coming, I mean, boardroom has has such a such a broad background in in direct mail, and and you even you know admit freely, including in that AWAI presentation, you've been slow to to adopt new media, and and I'd like to look at that from two sides. First off. Um, well, the, the first side is, 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 is why have you continued to be so reliant on direct mail? And then, and then the, the back side, uh, the, the second side of that is, is, is what lessons are you learning from new media as far as the application of you know, the, the classic direct mail principles? And then also what you were talking about before, the, you know, how your perception of, of immediate response uh, has changed as you've as you've looked at these new media. So let's 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 start with the with the direct mail side. Why why does Boardroom continue to, to do so much uh, direct mail, and 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 why did it remain such a large part of your business even with all the new opportunities online? Again, very good question. Um, I think it, you know it's clearly not an either or. I think, you know, I think when I made that speech at AWAI and talked about the importance of multi-channel marketing, it's not just a, a buzzword, it's, it's the truth. I mean, I think that all boats rise. And I think I even gave an example in that speech of a situation where we had a book that had started not working in direct mail. We were able to launch it as an infomercial on TV. Then from the TV, we were able to write new copy for direct mail and the direct mail was revived and then from both of those I was able to advertise online because of the amount of media I was spending in both TV and direct mail. So, you know, when all things are cooking on all cylinders, it's really kind of cool, you know, the idea of all boats rising with multi-channel. Specifically to direct mail though, a good friend of mine in the industry who I grew up with who's well-known now in the digital world as well. His name is Chris Paradise. Um, and Chris and I started, he was a list broker. I was basically selling to him as a manager, but we became really close friends. And he has a quote that I love using, which is, nothing scales like direct mail. And that is still true today. You know, when I tell online marketers that if you do direct mail right, even today, with the high cost, you know, one of the things that, you know, works against you with direct mail right now is, you know, postage kept going up with no increase in response. No matter what the U.S. Postal Service tells you, when they charge more postage, they don't get you higher response rates. So <laughs> it, it goes right to the bottom line in terms of costs. And so it just makes you even more, you know, diligent about the creative and about all the other aspects to make sure that you get the response rate to to go with formats that get the highest response rate. But even, you know, with all these rising costs and, you know, universes of lists going down because people have abandoned direct mail because of those costs, we still have direct mail campaigns that do on a bill me offer, you know, so a trial offer, that do as high as a 5% response rate. And that's without a sweepstakes. That's without, you know, any kind of, you know, huge incentives except that it's a free trial offer. And then of that 5% response rate, because of all the segmentation you can do and all the credit screening you can do, you know, you could get 60 to even 80% pay up on that. So net, you know, you can still end up, maybe you won't get 4% net, but you could get 3.5% net response, cash, and, you know, go to an online marketer and ask them when they get 35 to 5% response rates, and the answer to that question is never. So Absolutely. So, yes, online has, fewer, has lower costs, you know, so you can live with a .0003 response rate depending on your price point, depending on if it's a two-step, depending on your sales funnel. All of those things come into play. But nothing scales like direct mail if you do it right. So the, the other thing that's beautiful about direct mail is that the discipline that it takes because you're paying postage and you're paying all those costs as opposed to, you know, the 95 cents a thousand it costs to blast out email, um, it's, it, it, it makes you much more conscious, I think, of the creative and, and what you're going to put out there as your messaging. And so the discipline that it takes um, then gets transferred once you get a winner in direct mail, 
that you have so much to work with when you take that to the online medium. So, for example, you know, every online person, every person that I've hired in the last, you know, five to ten years who didn't cut their teeth in the direct mail world but more in the online world, you know, kind of looks at our copy and says, this is just too long. You know, no one's going to read this stuff online. No one will spend the time on it. And, of course, you and I both know, and you're a copywriter, and there are probably a lot of copywriters yeah. that will listen to this, we know that that's just stupidity. Um, it's not long copy or short copy. It's effective copy that sells. So the fact is that, you know, there's a lot of long copy online that's doing very well. And when you have a brand that's not known like ours, transferring all of that copy that we've invested in in direct mail and bringing it online has been far from a waste of time. It's been incredibly fruitful. Um, it's been, you know, the tough part is knowing where to cut because a lot of times you can go shorter online. You don't have to go, you know, if you have a 20-page Magalog in direct mail, you know, you probably don't have to have the equivalent of a 20-page scroll in, in an online promotion. But if you're going to do a 13-page or an 8-page, what 8 pages do you choose when you know that in direct mail those 20 pages were the meticulous work of one of the best copywriters in the country? So why direct mail? I mean, direct mail scales. Direct mail gives you the opportunity to strut your stuff in terms of best creative, best offer, best everything. And another thing is that even if you, know, if you do everything right and you still don't do well, whatever you invest in direct mail, you're going to get a lot, of, a lot of your investment back no matter what. I mean, that's very unlike TV where you, know, you, you, you do an infomercial, you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars, you go on the air, you only spend maybe $20,000 in media to, to test it, and you know within one weekend whether you have a, a loser or a winner, and you're not getting anything back on that $200,000 investment. In direct mail, because of the ability to test, the ability to single variable test, which is incredible, uh, much tougher to do single variable testing online because you don't get critical mass in terms of responses and response rates. Um, in direct mail, when you're working on 4 and 5% response rates, you're going to get enough critical mass to do real testing that's statistically significant to prove the best offer, to prove the best creative, to prove the best single variables that you're testing. And so now you've got, you know, proven stuff. And even if, it, as I said, even if it doesn't work, you spend $200,000 to launch a book in direct mail, you're going to get $100,000 back no matter what. If, you even, know, even, if, even if your response rates are, are, are very poor relative to expectations, that, uh, you're, you're still getting a good amount back. Exactly. So, and then you've done all these other tests so that when you go back out, you'll be able to get your investment back because you're only going to test the things that work. So the ability – I mean, the thing that I've noticed, and I mentioned this in my speech as well, that, you know, I don't I, – I wonder sometimes if online – and, and I understand it because you, you, you're kind of testing on the fly. You're doing, um, you're, doing, um, uh, you're doing things quickly and making decisions quickly, which is a great thing about online testing. The downside is that you're testing without true statistical significance. So, again, I'm not a statistician, but I know that saying that this, this, this creative got 12 orders and this other creative got eight, on a $50 product is not statistical significance. And so, you know, the ability to do direct mail where you can test set, you know, cells of 25,000 names, you can get, you know, Dick Benson's rule of thumb is that you want 100 paid orders at least to compare, you know, at one, one panel to another. Um, yeah. So I, I think I've given you a lot of reasons why still direct mail. The problem is, is that the investment in direct mail is pretty high. You got to know what you're doing, and lists, list universes have shrunk because a lot of people are less expert in it, and they've given up on it because of the high costs. So lists that used to generate a lot larger universes for us to mail aren't as readily available, and that's sort of frustrating. But response rates are still very, very good. I'd say that there's less clutter in the mailbox, so if you get into direct mail today, 
you probably have a little bit more attention in the mailbox than you might have even five years ago. And so if you do everything right, again, best creative, best list selection, best offers, best back-end marketing, all of that stuff, best billing and renewals, best, you know, cross-sell, upsell, you know, you've got a tremendous opportunity to basically kick ass. So yeah. that's why direct mail still. Now, the other part of your question was what? Well, it was it was um, how how you're applying classic principles and what's different between between all your direct mail experience and online. But before we before we go there, I, I actually had lunch yesterday with with a gentleman who owns um, well, he owns multiple businesses, but but he has he has two core businesses uh, here in town, and and one is one of the biggest uh, printing and mailing shops in the state, and the other is one of the biggest website development firms in the state. And one of the things that we talked about at lunch was um, his experience, and and he he said he has tons of of data to back this up. Is is exactly what you've been talking about with with the integration of multiple media. Um, that, that his clients who just want to do online are not doing nearly as well as his clients who, who are willing to bounce uh, you know, clients, customers back and forth between uh, their online efforts and their offline efforts. And so you may acquire somebody through direct mail uh, and, and have them spend a lot of time at your website, but then go back to them with important marketing communication uh, through the mail. And, and they do that for their customers. They encourage their clients to do that. And it sounds like that that's, that's exactly what's, what's working well for you is, 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 is you know, not thinking of yourself as a media-focused company. Uh, you know, even, though, even though Boardroom was built so, so heavily in direct mail, um, that, that, that thinking of yourselves in terms of, of communicating with, with clients using whatever media is appropriate for each communication. Um, yeah, I think I had a slide at that presentation as well that said something like, uh, um, you know, no one should define themselves by a channel. I mean, this idea that someone comes up to you and goes, I'm an online marketer, I think is a big mistake. I think it closes off the possibility for being multi-channel. And was your, was yeah. your comment that that's the equivalent of saying I'm a – I'm a bus bench marketer. Exactly. <laughs> and I, you know, so. I, don't, I never said I was a direct mail marketer. I said I always say that I'm indirect marketing. I've said this even when we were mostly dire when we were all direct mail. I said I'm, yeah. an, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a direct marketer. We do most of our sales through direct mail, but I've never met a medium I didn't like. So you know, even back in the 80s and 90s, we would test package inserts. We would test print. I mean, we were all over. We actually did full-page ads in the New York Times with direct response just to see, you know, what the advantage, what we could do there. And certainly yeah. when, when online became, you know, whether it's email advertising or website or display on, on ad networks or Google AdSense, whatever it is, um, AdWords, search, um, again, I still haven't met a medium I didn't like. Well, excellent. So let's let's talk about how you're applying some of the the classic direct marketing principles to online. You know, any any examples or whatever that that support that. Um, and then and then also some of the, the what you, what you mentioned that you know you're learning some different lessons about about immediate measurability of of some of today's media. Yeah, so I'll give you the bad news because I, I think it's important. And you know, I am people who know me, and I hope that. You know, while I've been talking a lot about it, it sounds like I'm in a bragging conversation, I just got to make sure that your listeners and you know that that's not my style. I, I'm trying to give a sense of our size and scope just because it's who we are. Um, yeah. I, I by no means um, think I know it all, nor do I think that, um, you know, in fact, I think in my LinkedIn profile, I have something in there that says, you know, where I'm at right now in my career is that, you know, I'm, I'm learning by teaching. Like being able to teach the principles that I've been putting together for the last 30 years is kind of my ticket into a new world of marketing and marketers. 
and if they like what I have to say or they can apply what I have to say, then I've got, you know, the world's my oyster because I'll, I'll share anything. But, you know, I want to learn from them because they're doing some stuff with technology and things that I didn't grow up with that I have a lot to learn. So the bad news is there's a quote that I used also, uh, and I've been using it a lot lately, um, from, from a very wise guy, a wise person, not a wise guy, but a wise person that I know <laughs> in, the, uh, in the M&A world, merger and acquisition world. And he said to me, um, and I said, I've got to use this quote. He didn't even think he was being as profound when he said it. But he said the quote was something like, advertising opportunities are now infinite. And I think as a direct marketer who specialized in direct mail, not understanding that is an opportunity, is, is kind of a prescription for failure. Because in the direct mail world, while there were so many lists available and it felt like, you know, we could do so many different things in so many different ways, um, it was very clear that... Um, the advertising opportunities were still finite. You know, one list broker might be able to segment the Money Magazine list better than another because of their ingenuity, but the Money Magazine list was the Money Magazine list, and, and then you had a bunch of other magazine lists, and then you had a bunch of book buyer lists, and you had, I mean, names were infinite, you know, in terms of names that were out there on compiled lists, but as far as the unique lists that were available of response names, it's a finite universe. It's, you know, this is the universe of advertising. And what's happened online because of the explosion of audiences and, you know, I'm sure you've seen all those stats. Like, I, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk has some stat. I, I wish I could, I, I got to get the exact quote because I use it. I try to use it a lot. But it's the quote that talks about if you take all content from the beginning of time, and I don't know if that includes people who were doing Sanskrit in caves or you know, inscri inscribing on rocks. It's cavemen. Maybe it's from the printing press on, but it was like all content that had ever been created from that point until, I don't know, the year 1980. The content that's produced now, or maybe it was till 2000, I don't know, but the content that's produced in 48 hours now, equals all of that combined, or something like that. It's something ridiculous like that. So when you well, think yeah, about... It's, it's a, a very similar quote I heard recently is that the amount of content that's put in front of us every day is, is identical to what the average human consumed in a lifetime 100 years ago. That, 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 you, you're in, yes, now you're in my conversation. So that, that's kind yeah, of what I was going. So based on that, because of that, Every one of the, all of that content, even if it's in stupid chat rooms or people saying LOL 15 times in a row, it's still <laughs> out there and it's an audience that could be reachable, theoretically. I mean, you see what Facebook is doing now in terms of the ability to, you know, put pages up in your sleep and get people to comment on ridiculous content and then create a universe of people that eventually could become people you could sell something to or people you could create a community with who could save lives in, you know, in some fundraising capacity, whatever. So it's, and it's not just about commerce here. So when, when I say advertising opportunities are now infinite, what that means to a marketer like me who is so used to paying for media, getting a response, and, and, and then deciding whether that media was worth buying – I have to get a whole new head mindset that says there's a lot of free crappy content out, uh, free crappy media out there. There's free mildly crappy media. There's free media. There's free good media. You know, whatever. All the all the different and and media has taken on a whole different definition. So as I move to answer your question, as I move from direct mail to online messaging out online can still be very similar. In other words, I see ads all the time on different, whether it's a message board or whether it's actual paid advertising on MSN. Um, there's messaging that is speaking to the same kinds of emotions of, 
you know, greed and desire and, and all the things that direct marketing copy has been about since day one is all out there for consumption. And frankly, no matter, you know, how whiz-bang your computer is or how often you're online versus offline, my, my sense is that human nature hasn't changed. So, you know, some of the, the things that drive desire um, are still all out there. So I guess what I'm trying to say, so the bad news is that if I'm going to live in a world that every piece of copy I put out there or every message I put out there or everything I try to sell has to be, you know, dealt with um, with a response and a P&L, I'm missing the boat, which is tough because that's the way I was brought up in direct marketing. And in the online world, it's a lot more about suspending disbelief. It's a lot about maybe there's different ways to accumulate names. I mean, you know, learning what a squeeze page was was like a huge revelation for me because I always knew in direct mail all about two-step and lead generation and all of those kinds of things. And that's being done on the Internet on steroids, you know? Absolutely. And so, you know, learning all of that, I'm not saying that I, I went grudgingly. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good student. But, you know, the fact that advertising opportunities are now infinite was such an important concept to let me understand that direct mail and the, and the, and the, the offshoots of direct mail are not the be-all and end-all and that, there are so many other ways to skin the cat when media advertising opportunities are now infinite. And so, so let, that's sort of let me odd. let me drill down to, to something, um, and 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 I guess I guess challenge you. You know, with your with your 31 years experience, starting as you know in the direct mail list business, and now you know having run infomercials and having having done so much online advertising and really starting to understand uh, you know how how to think differently about some of these uh, different media uh, if you were starting a direct response business today and and looking to 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 create a business that that could grow on its own as, as quick as possible. Where would you where would you start in terms of marketing media used and and um, something that 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 could uh, well that, that you could then scale. So yeah, so there's a couple of parts to that question. Scale is the big 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 issue. So in the last few years, I've, I've spent less time with traditional direct marketers and spent more of my time with people who unfortunately define themselves by a channel by calling themselves online marketers. And so I have a lot more time with those folks. And so to answer your question, first of all, there's nobody that I know, including me, that would want to start a company today on either a print, um, a print model and or direct mail model. I think that that's a huge mistake because um, that's not where the world's going. Um, that's not to say direct mail's dead or that print is dead, but it's clear to me that that's not a, a, a growth pattern. So to answer your question, you know, it certainly has to be uh, starting in areas where the media cost and the and the barrier to entry is a lot lower, which is clearly online. Um, that doesn't mean you can slap anything up there and it's going to work. And what I found with the people that I've been hanging out with the last few years in, who are almost all online all the time, the ones who are most successful really get it as far as trying to use principles that are not going to lead to one-hit wonders, that they're already thinking about direct marketing principle. I mean, look, Bob Stone's seeks us um, um, successful direct marketing methods, which is the Bible on direct marketing. You know, right at the beginning of that book, it's like no mail order, no. It's I think it said no direct marketing business, but it probably might even said no direct mail business can survive without repeat business. 
And the guys that I hang out with understood that right from the start. So, you know, this idea of creating funnels and cross-sell, upsell, and all that is, you know, kind of part of the initial business plan. And, you know, the, the idea that, that there are a lot of other people online who think that if they get a, a, a promotion for something that that's a business, they're wrong. A promotion is not a business. And then again, I would say a product is not a business. You know, coming up with one product is not a business. That's the old infomercial business. You know, the, ga- you know, the guy who invented the Snuggie also invented 80 other products that same year, 78 of which sucked. You know? And yeah. so, you know, you've you got to always think. So even if you're going to go one-hit wonder, you better have hundreds of one-hit wonders waiting in the wings because you're going to have a list of buyers that you want to cross-sell, upsell. So that's something that the online folks understood. The other thing that they understood, and the reason, to go back to your question about in a startup mode, you know, right now I'm saddled in a company with, a, with overhead that's, you know, a really high, you know, whether it's, in, and it's our own doing, whether it's Stanford, Connecticut, whether it's having skilled editors, whether it's all the things that an offline print business came with, um, we're kind of stuck with some of that now. So being able to turn on a dime and being able to be completely nimble online is a lot tougher for a company that's established already, although we're working hard at it and we're doing a decent job. But I think the idea that if you're going to do a startup situation, to not be in a situation where um, you're working with very low overhead, outsourcing like crazy, not taking on much um, infrastructure, at least initially, is critical because the scaling that you're going to get online isn't going to be that big right away unless you get lucky. Um, you know, the guys who understand how to do these online launches, sometimes they're able to do a $2 million launch right away, or they stumble into a business line where they've got three or four products lined up in a particular category. So to be able to do that and be able to completely have your business outsourced, and, you know, so the, the dream of, of, of working in your pajamas on Skype is so critical to getting into that startup mode. And so from my perspective, you know, I have, I call it pajama and Skype envy. You know, it's like <laughs> I wish that I could take every idea that I hear that I fall in love with, incorporate it into the business here, and be able to scale it quickly. Scaling for me is very different than scaling for the independent entrepreneur. And so it's all relative. You know, when someone does a launch of a new product, an online affiliate launch, and does a quarter of a million dollars in revenue and gets 100,000 names added to their list, that's like, that's a business. For me, and this is not a, a this is more a, a put down than it is a bragging in any, in, you know, it's, you know, those kinds of numbers, it's, it's not a drop in the bucket, but it's not, it does, it's not a game changer for me. Yeah, because because your business is is so much larger and has such such a big history, you need multiples of that. Exactly. Um, whereas the independent entrepreneur doesn't need to think in multiples of that. That can that can make the year for for many folks. That's correct. So I don't know if I answered your question, but my my answer about the scaling and about where do you start? I think if the entrepreneurs, the ones that I I, I admire the most are the ones who understand that, but they're also, in the back of their mind at least, have products two, three, four, and five in mind should that launch work or should that first thing work. Those are the, those are the applications of direct marketing that make the – and a lot of these online marketers don't even know that they're practicing something that was done in direct mail for years and years and years. But – they're doing it, as I said, on steroids, and they're doing it with low-cost media, and hopefully they're doing it with world-class creative and delivering products that are that are good. I mean, there's a lot of yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of people that that, that do this, and they're evil <laughs> too. And they make a lot of money. unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Well, let's. I there there are two things I want to talk about, and we're down to about five minutes left. Um, so the first one, just just really quickly, you have seen um, you've seen 
probably as many direct mail test results and, and really paid attention to them, or direct marketing test results, I won't limit myself to a media there, uh, as anybody, and you are hiring the world's best, most expensive copywriters, designers, creatives. Um, and, and, and of course, you don't know the results until, until the market speaks, but is there anything that you look for in every marketing communication uh, from boardroom, bottom line, uh, before you want to, before you're willing to send it out or there do you have a, a short checklist yeah I mean I'm not the creative director and I don't I don't aspire to be nor do I see myself as any anywhere near the the copy I don't have the copy intelligence that the copywriters that I work with do um, but the things that I mean to me I was having a conversation today with somebody who was showing me some online copy for a product. It was a kind of a supplement type product. And the the premise, they, they had fallen in love with a premise, like a, a, a kind of a catchy phrase that had no benefit to it, to me, that um, didn't real and, and, and that because the product has some complicated elements to it in terms of the makeup of the, of the supplement and how it works, to me, you know, I want to go right to people's core desires and needs. So when I read a headline, and headlines, of course, to answer your question, headlines are the most important, but what is the overriding selling proposition that gets under the skin of the prospect? And Marty used to always say, you know, does that make me vibrate? Well. You know, I think it, that's part of it, but it's also what's the base need here? Even if it's a complicated product, and, you know, so use an example. So the product in question was both um, an appetite suppressant, but it also had all of these properties that would immediately reduce your blood sugar. And, of course, diabetes is a, and prediabetes is an epidemic in this country. So... Yeah. I thought, and again, maybe I'm wrong, and again, you can test this, but my thought was, you know, the, to me, the base need was the appetite suppressant aspect of it, even though that's only one element of it, and the person behind the product was reluctant to go there because they were so proud of the fact and so invested in the fact that, you know, it lowered your blood sugar, which was real, a real medical thing which you, you want to make sure that gets expressed in the copy. But to me, the, the, the base thing here was, you know, and I, I'll write that, I'm not a copywriter, but the headline to me was something like, you know, if you could, if you, if you, if you could get help right now that you could eat less and feel satisfied all the time, you know, would you would you sign up for that? That's not the copy, but that's the concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, and to me, that's a base thing. It's you know obviously all benefit oriented. Um, what's it going to do for me? I mean, all the things that that you guys learn as copywriters. So I'm looking at I'm looking at did the did the copy you know um, you know solve a problem you know cover a need and get to some base you know, influence uh, that, that I needed, you know. And um, so that's one large thing. And then, you know, specifically, you know, headlines to me are everything. You know, I can't get in. I, if, you, if you don't have a headline that grabs me, I can't get into the base copy. Um, and I think well, I look for proof elements everywhere, in the words of Gary Bensavenga. So I'm always looking for did the copywriter do their research? Did they get the the doctors to endorse? Did they ask the right questions in terms of creating real credibility so that after you make your outrageous claims, how do you back them up? And there has to be a real story being told on that. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I have a bottom line health uh, Magalog sitting in front of me. Um, the common misdiagnosis that can land you in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And if, if you are anywhere near the age where, where, where you're concerned about ending up in a nursing home, uh, I mean, that, that grabs you. Um, and then on the backside, your proof element, uh, Nobel Prize winner's breakthrough prevents heart attack and stroke relieves impotence. 
I mean, it, this, it's just one example that I happen to have sitting in front of me that hits those two things that you're talking about just, just on, a, on, on a very fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, you know, if copywriters can get their hands on, on any of the copy, especially your, your controls, and we didn't talk about the process of controls or anything like that here, but, but your, your best performing copy, it's, it's, it's worth studying as much as you would study any other piece of copy out there in the marketplace. So if folks want to learn more about you, uh, we talked about this, that probably the best way to do that is, is to simply Google you. And, and, and you know, for listeners, your name is Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z. And um, if they are interested in learning. I would say one hint on that, and, and not – not that I, I do this that often, but I did it once, and I saw what happened. If, if, you, if you Google Brian Kurtz, you might get – there is some child molester in Nebraska who's not me. Um, oh, jeez. But, but, no, you don't get that first either. But if you, if you do Brian Kurtz and boardroom as the search, what, and I'm, what, a lot of what comes up, which is where, you know, the way Google picks it up, a lot of other interviews I've done like this seem to come to the top you know, because of the, I guess, because of the audio or the video. But, you know, I've done a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of uh, speeches and things like that. And a lot of the stuff that comes up to the top is a lot of, you know, some of the stuff that I've talked about today. I mean, I'm, I'm not on total reruns, and I do learn stuff new every day, but there's a lot of stuff that's sort of ingrained in my head that stays with me all the time. And so that's, like, the best way. We also have a website, which is bottomlinepublications.com, and there you can get a sense of, um, you went back, you talked about um, looking at copies. So there is our, it's a, it's, a, it's a content website, so you can get a lot of a sense of all of our great content that we, that we provide. But on that site, there are sign-ups for our e-letters. There's Daily Health News, Bottom Line Secrets, and a few others. And if you sign up for our e-letters, they're free. What you'll get is you'll get, you know, multiple times a week, you'll get an e-letter, an e-newsletter with some content. Usually in the case of Bottom Line Secrets, it's broad consumer content, all kinds of stuff that's appeared in Bottom Line Personal. In the case of Daily Health News, it's clearly, um, it, it's, it's actually um, new health content from all types of integrative doctors and all areas of medicine. And then within those e-letters are embedded ads. Um, and some of the ads are for boardroom products, so if you click on those, you'll get a sense of what we've done with our direct mail copy and how we've converted it to online copy, what we call e-magalogs. And then, of course, we have third-party advertisers in there, which are some of the best direct marketers in the country who we've done revenue share deals with, who are doing some of the best online promotions, whether it's the people from Agora, the people from Soundview. I mean, these are great direct marketers. And so you'll see a, a wide array of ads, of techniques, of all sorts of stuff. And as, a, as someone who's a, a follower of you, I would think that they would want to – it's almost like your own little uh, uh, swipe file that comes to your inbox every day. Um, and then there, there are solos that come, solo ads that come in both for outside offers and internal offers. So it's a really good way to kind of follow us online creatively and also the people that we're partners with. So that's not about me personally, but that would be a great way to kind of follow the marketing side of what we do online. Absolutely. And just, just one other thing, because I know we're, we're, we've already pushed over our time here. Um, you have republished books written by some of your top consultants through time, including uh, Eugene Schwartz, who was, who was fundamental in the, in the early growth and a lot of the growth of, of Boardroom, uh, his book Breakthrough Advertising, as well as uh, Dick Benson's book Secrets of Successful Direct Mail and Gordon Grossman's book Confessions of a Direct Mail Guy. And I will personally vouch for, for those being some of the you know, most influential books in my direct marketing thinking. They're, they're just complete revelation, even though they come from a, from a time where there was no Google AdWords or anything like that. Uh, you know, you can still get just as much out of those today. Yeah, I think, um, you, I think they should be on our store site, bottomlinestores.com. Um, so 
and they're, you're right. And, and actually, Breakthrough Advertising is funny. Remember I say human nature hasn't changed. That book was written in 1966 by Gene Schwartz, and it's really a book about human behavior. And we didn't, not one word of that text has changed since 1966, and it's 100% relevant. Absolutely. Okay, well, Brian, thank you very much uh, for, for joining me for this Live with Roy interview today. And uh, to all my listeners, thank you very much as well for, for listening in. I'll talk to you again soon. Hey there, this is Roy Fur, and I just want to say thank you for tuning in to another Live with Roy interview. If you haven't already joined us, I encourage you to drop everything and go to www.livewithroy.com. Join us today and you'll get first priority notification when new interviews are posted and ready for you to listen. This is the single best way for you to get access to all the new interviews I post with the world's leading experts on information marketing and publishing, internet marketing, copywriting, selling, business success, and a whole lot more. I'll even send you a free gift by email right away when you join now. It costs you nothing but your name and email address, and the content you'll get could be transformational to your life and business. All you have to do is go to www.livewithroy.com and join us now. Again, that's www.livewithroy.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you again soon.